out there at Cover Stories with Just Life listeners. This is Dan Lucas, who's been the host of this podcast since April of 2018. However, effective with this episode, I am turning over the reins to our brand new Just Life editor, John Hartman. It was always my intention that this show be hosted by the Just Life editor, who at the time, in back in April of 2018, was me. But shortly after I started the podcast, uh, we created a new position, Director of Strategic Communication, that I was put into, and I did continue hosting the show, even though I was no longer technically the editor. But now that we have a person who is very interested in taking over this show and who's completely capable of handling the duties, it's time for me to go. You can still listen to me on the second Tuesday of each month on my One Move at a Time podcast, where I talk to people who are advancing our mission statement. I'm very proud of what we've accomplished with our family of podcasts here at US Chess. Uh, Not only do we have this Cover Stories podcast on the first Tuesday of each month and my One Move podcast on the second Tuesday, we've grown to fill up the entire month with Jen Shahadi's Ladies' Night on the third Tuesday and Pete Karyanis's Chess Underground on the fourth Tuesday. I uh, hope that you continue to listen to all of our family on podcasts on a weekly basis, and I hope you have fun listening to a brand new host on Cover Stories with Chess Life. So with that, take it away, John Hartman. Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's Chess Life magazine cover story. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which includes One Move at a Time on the second Tuesday of each month, where Dan Lucas talks to people who are advancing our mission statement, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, hosted by our women's program director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our assistant director of national events, Pete Karagiannis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or you can subscribe via iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Our guest today is GM Jesse Cry, who wrote the cover story on chess in the age of COVID-19 for the June issue of Chess Life. Jesse became an IM in 2001 and a GM in 2007, earning his final norm at the Foxwoods Open. In his scholastic days, Jesse was equally lauded, winning the National Junior High School Championship in 1987, tying for first in the National High School in 1988, and winning the Denker Tournament of High School Champions in 1989 and 1990. Jesse holds a PhD in philosophy from the University of Heidelberg, which he earned in 2001. He's also the author of Lisa, a chess novel, a fascinating book about a young chess prodigy, and one of the first books I reviewed way back when, in 2013. I'll probably want to ask him some questions about that book later. Recently, Jesse has done some work for the St. Louis Chess Club, doing analysis during live events and on the live stream. Currently, he's devoting a lot of his time to his new project, Chess Dojo, in conjunction with IM's Kostya Kavutsky and David Pruce, alongside his teaching, uh, his online teaching endeavors. You can find him on Twitter at twitter.com slash jessecry and twitter.com chess underscore dojo. With all of that out of the way, let's welcome Jesse to the show. Happy to be here. Thank you. So you are here and uh, a most auspicious podcast. This is my first podcast taking over for Dan Lucas. And uh, we're here to talk about your cover story for the June issue on chess and the coronavirus. So for those of us, uh, or for those of the, the listeners who may not have had a chance to read it yet, can you summarize what you said there? Right. Well, that was written right after the um, 
whole situation had kind of gone down, at least for me, where, you know, everything got canceled in my chess world, or at least it became totally evident that everything was getting canceled. Um, and so I wanted to just get a sense of using just my personal vantage point on the situation, what it was like for the broader community and where it might go. And I'm sure we'll touch in like all the various uh, facets of, you know, where it might go. I guess we got to talk about playing online and cheating and that kind of things. But right, I just kind of gave a, a future look of what it might what it might be in a couple months. And you actually, uh, and we have to figure out at this point when we're recording, we have to figure out exactly how we're going to provide this to our uh, to our readers. But you did an audio version of the story uh, for us to include as part of this podcast or as a separate podcast, correct? That's right. Yeah. So why did you think that was so important? Uh, that's a good question. I know you know you and others are very interested in. Um, chess books and I am too but I think what's um, happening now is that the kids today aren't reading books they're not reading articles online it's TLDR for them too long didn't read and so um, I think podcasts like we're doing right now and video whether it's Twitch or YouTube is kind of like the new medium and I'm an old guy but I'm trying to learn I'm trying to learn this new medium, and sometimes it makes me scream uh, because it doesn't work right, but I am trying to learn how to do it. Just So I think just like learning how to read and write, it's a new way of doing things that's, uh, that is evolving very quickly. You wrote this piece for us in early April, uh, so this is you know a month and a half ago now. If you were to write it again today... Is there anything you change? Is, is there anything you think that, that doesn't hold up or anything that you would want to revise? Um, maybe two things. Um, the, you know, I talked a little bit about cheating uh, there. And, uh, it, and basically, let's say I was optimistic about sites like chess.com and chess24 being able to deal with the cheating problem and while that is maybe still true from with a long view as in a couple years the immediate aftermath has been in the last couple months that that the cheating has spiked in ways that i don't think anyone could have predicted um, I mean, we're talking about people cheating in simuls, you know, like, let's say you're some GM and you give a simul online and way more than half of the people playing against you are cheating, right? Or there was the European Blitz Championship and like the 1400 to 1600 rating group had numerous cheaters, like more than 15, 50%. So, right, like the cheating has taken on a whole new level that's very interesting just psychologically, like what's going on with these people that are cheating. Um, and it's overwhelmed uh, sites like chess.com, at least at the moment, right? I'm still hopeful that they can figure it out, but at the moment, it's just completely overwhelmed the online uh, sphere of playing. Yeah, the, the cheating thing is a very strange thing, and it, it's funny. I was just on the Perpetual Chess podcast, which comes out uh, this morning as as we're recording, and I, I cited the exact same thing that you did the um, the the European Youth Championship, where in the in the fourteen to seventeen hundred section, you know, five out of the six top players were all caught by Chess dot com. Uh, it, it's it's a very strange situation to be in. 
I, I, can you tell me more about the, the psychology of it? Because I, I think this is a very interesting idea. And I, I wonder if you have some insight into why you think people are doing this. I think it's mostly about validation. And um, I, I think the, the validation is also the key factor when people are doing it over the board. It's usually not actually money. Um, a very telling moment I had recently where I was at the, it did with Greg Jihadi, he's doing the U.S. chess school. And I was showing a game, but I didn't tell anyone what the game was. And, you know, Greg has this cool system where you can call on kids. And this one kid's like, okay, call on me, call on me. I want to tell you what, I want to tell you what I think the best move is. And then the kid, like what he had done wasn't computer cheating, but he had gone into the database, searched the position, found all the moves of the game, and then recited all the following moves of the game as if it was like his answer to the solution, to the question, right? Like what you should play here. And it was so blatantly obvious. Um, and well, it's, you know, he's a young kid. And so it's like, you want to feel like you are a genius in front of your peers and um, it makes you feel great. And then also what I encountered there was very interesting from, let's call it the institutional perspective is that I didn't feel, um, I, I didn't feel, I didn't see what the upside would be for me to call the kid out. It would, it would have ruined the class for everybody else. And um, then I would have had to deal with a bruised ego. And I think in a nutshell, that's what's going on with chess.com. But for them, it's, there's also like legal questions. Like when they call somebody out, then they have to deal with this whole like, oh my God, you know, you've called me a cheater and now I have to defend myself. And I'm going to, you know, then, oh my God, you know. So it's very, it's, you know, it showed to me like how pervasive it is. And also like from a, um, someone who's trying to control the situation, how difficult it is actually to, to call out the cheater. Yeah, it, this is, this is definitely going to be an ongoing problem. And, and one that I know us chess is trying to deal with as we, we try to move into online play. Uh, I, I wonder, do you, do you think that us chess should be, uh, rating online games? Well, I think in a way they're going to have to, if it, de it depends on how it evolves. Right. But, um, like for example, we're doing this cool stuff on chess dojo right now where people are, we've got a ladder that you can play as many games as you like, or you can all, we're also organizing round robins and, uh, actually, something I didn't realize when I wrote the article then, too, is that I didn't understand how this was going to evolve with tournaments online. And the hard thing that was I couldn't see then was that the advantage of a site like Chess Dojo is instead of it being like this huge anonymous sea of people that you might be playing randomly on chess.com or some other site, with the dojo experience, you kind of are going to know the people. So the... Uh, the chances of cheating are less and it also is attracting the cheating set less though. I'm sure we will also have the cheating problem. I mean, it's not like we're going to be immune to it, you know? Right. Yeah. I, I, I do want to, I do want to talk uh, about chess dojo quite a bit, but before we get there, I, I want you, you referenced Greg Shahadi and a, a big part of your article is the, the disagreement, so to speak, the, the ongoing right. long-term disagreement that you have, with Greg in terms of a vision for right. the future of chess. Right. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, and one thing I talk about in the article is this, um, 
guy Kahneman who came out you know came out a while ago but the basic idea is that there's two kinds of thinking where there's like long thinking and there's short thinking and and it hit me you know he didn't talk about chess he does talk about chess a little bit but not in this respect but that there's really two different kinds of thinking going on both in chess and in the real world too and long thinking just is an entirely different beast and it i didn't really appreciate that until very recently you know i didn't appreciate that uh, that there's two different games going on and one reason i didn't appreciate it is usually the best blitz players are also the best players at the longer form of the game not always but there's you know there's some overlap there even though it is two totally different things and i think one of the reasons for that that uh, people who are good at the long form are also good at the short form is when you're playing blitz chess, you're just reciting what you already know. You're not creating anything new. You're just coming in there and you're just like, yep, this is where the piece belongs. Here we go. Boom, boom, boom. And so it can feel very empowering because of that, but you aren't actually, you know, going to create new ideas when you're playing blitz. Yeah. This is, um, it's interesting. You're you're not the only uh, chess writer and teacher to have picked this up. You know, Jakob Agard talks about uh, System One and System Two thinking extensively. Oh, okay, good. In uh, in in thinking inside the box. Um, but I, it's interesting. I, I I'm I'm curious because in your article, it what you talk about almost takes on a spiritual dimension. Uh huh. And. Having read your work for many years now, um, going back to Lisa and to your blog in, in 2013 and 2014, um, this is not something that's really new to your work. And, and in this sense, I, I want to read you a quote from your blog okay. way back in 2013. I know this is totally unfair because we should never be held responsible for the things we wrote years ago. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, this this blog, which by the way, I don't think it's I don't think it's still in existence. I had to go to the to to archive.org to find it. Mm, mm-hmm. um, but y- you had something about my philosophy of chess. Right. And there's a couple of quotes where you said, um, chess is a meditation upon a more transparent world that we yearn for but can never actually have. Uh-huh. And then you said, um, when you ask me about teaching or you ask me to be your teacher, all of my answers and all of my advice will revolve around the sublime spiritual activity that I and many others have experienced in this game. It's not a means to an end. It's who we are. Do you still stand by this, this philosophical with all of those lo- all of the loaded uh, nature of that phrase, this, this philosophical understanding of chess? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I could put it in different terms, but, but very much so. Um, and honestly, I think that people who are players who maybe um, would reject that, I think if you get dive into it, like why they are playing chess, why they are drawn to it, what's beautiful to it about them, it's going to be at some level spiritual. Now, spiritual, you know, conveys ideas of, um, you know, being religious or something, which I didn't really, I don't mean by that. I just mean you can have a spiritual moment if you climb to the top of a mountain and have a view, or there's a, you know, a variety of ways of having a spiritual moment. But in terms of uh, an intellectual moment, um, by all means, it's, that is to me a spiritual thing that you can achieve through uh, reading and writing, and you can achieve it in math, and you can achieve it in all kinds of other ways, which are generally 
I guess we would call system two thinking. Now, when I wrote that, I didn't have any idea of that difference. You know, that wasn't even present in my mind. Um, but that's the way I would put it now that there's a spiritual element when you, uh, whenever really, I think you, you think deeply about something or try to solve a problem. So where is there room for this in an online chess world or, 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 you know, again, not not to put a religious spin on it or, or any sort of value system, but is our world so is our current online world so fallen that that there's no room for this anymore? Oh no, I think you know, even if you're a blitz player and you're addicted to playing quickly, you are still um, reveling in some kind of beauty in the game, whether you whether you want to admit it or not. You know, you're still part of it. Yeah. No, I. I uh, I, this is one of the things I, I've always liked about your writing, and and for me personally, um, you know, I, I I don't think I'd play chess if 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 this dimension wasn't there. So I I appreciate that you've said this. So talking a little bit about philosophy, because we did have a couple of questions about this. So you went to Shimer as an undergraduate. Uh, did you go to the great? Were you part of the Great Books program there? I was. That's right. And um, <laughs> I should say that was like, you know, that was a twist in my life. I I wanted to be a chess player, and they had a chess scholarship. So, um, you know, there was like a, there was a divergence moment there between me doing chess or going to school. And I think mostly because I had a scholarship and my parents were like, no, obviously you have to go to school and they didn't have any sympathy for the chess pursuit. Uh, that's why I chose that. Yeah. But I don't, I don't necessarily regret, regret it. I mean, it would just turned into this academic part of my life that I did. Yeah, and so you actually, uh, unlike me, who uh, who washed out, uh, you have a PhD in philosophy uh, from the University of Heidelberg. Right. And your dissertation topic, I didn't know what it was until I went and looked it up. Can you tell us what it was and, and what you wrote about and how you got there? Well, long story, but I was interested especially in philosophy and history of science. So kind of the idea, there are a lot of questions that are interesting, but how we come to think of things as true and uh, yeah, what kind of measures of truth do we have? And, you know, it's just this fascinating question of how did someone come to think of the Copernican theory as true, so true that he was willing to risk his whole business, his life, to publish it, be, to, be, to be the first one to publish it. And, um, you know, the fascinating thing is it's not some story about like, oh, science is great. No, the, the dude thought it was true, for at least partly for astrological reasons. Hmm. So, you know, when you look at the history of science and how things come to be seen as true, there's often like this whole layered thing going on of, of belief systems that we don't even have any connection to anymore. Very hard for us even to understand. Uh, so that was what my dissertation was about, which was, uh, you know, a lot of historical research at the same time. Now, th this is not the the only book you've written, and we've referenced the um, the 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 one that may be well more well known to our listeners, uh, Lisa, a chess novel, and this came out in 2013. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So, what prompted you decide to write chess fiction? Um, that was a story that it had kind of going around in my mind for a long time, and um, you know, I'd read a lot of books and I'd written some things, but I was by no means a fiction writer, so you know, it was a very difficult project for me. Um, I spent a lot of time on it. I took a break from doing chess, chess, 
uh, by chess chess, I just mean studying all the time and stuff, to write it. And um, yeah, I was mostly happy with, it, with the way it came out. I might have done things a little bit differently, especially on, you know, just the presentation of the book, but mostly I was happy with, with how it came out. Yeah, I um, it's actually, it's one of the first books I reviewed um, many, many years ago in 2013, before I even wrote for Chess Life. Um, and I went back and looked at the review and I cringed. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I think um, I, I really admired the book. I thought it was a very novel and uh, a brave intervention and uh, I, I enjoyed reading it. Listeners definitely should check it out. I, I assume it's still available um, in print. Yeah. Yeah. You can go to Amazon or wherever and still get it. Perfect. Uh, we do have a question from Alexi Root related to this. Uh-huh. Uh, and Alexi asks, uh, Jesse, I list Lisa, a chess novel as an example of chess themed literature in my chess online courses at the university of Texas at Dallas. Uh, will you publish more chess fiction? And if not, what are your current writing projects? That's an interesting question. Um, well, first of all, thank you very much. That's I mean, I, I always, you know, wonder to what extent sometimes, you know, I always wonder to what extent the book kind of lives on and sometimes it seems like not at all. And then sometimes I get very um, positive feedback that's encouraging. Um, you know, my wife is very literary minded and um, she helped me with the book and she's currently doing her own like literary journal journey. And let me say, how did it happen? Well, we came here to Baltimore so she could do the um, fiction MFA at Hopkins. And, um, it really kind of turned me off from writing. I want to say, because why that, that's very interesting. Why? Because these kids kind of like were, um, not, they're mostly interested. They're so demoralized by the world of writing that they really only see writing as a path to getting a job as being a teacher. Okay. And I, I have, and my wife, honestly, a little bit too, like, I, and I have zero interest. <laughs> I mean, I can teach, I can do all kinds of teaching. I'm a teacher right now in a lot of ways. And the, whether I teach writing or chess, it's, it's all the same to me. And in some respects, you know, I enjoy teaching anything, but could, could you, could you say a little bit more about that? Because that's actually to me personally, that that's a very interesting comment. Um, uh, so what do you think it means to be a teacher and, and why do you think it sort of crosses platforms like that or, or crosses disciplines? Well, you know, <laughs> I don't know, I wasn't prepared for that one. Um, the, um, I think if, if you've done a lot of intellectual work with a subject, whether it's chess or literature, you're going to be kind of given to teaching anyway. And society will also expect that from you. Like that's the okay. only thing you're going to be able to do with it anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's my brief answer to that question. Um, but let me just finish the thing with my wife and coming here and becoming, becoming kind of demoralized. I feel like within the last four or five years, and this is in, uh, interesting to talk to you about because I know you are very committed along with um, the you know beneficial the perpetual mm -hmm. podcast to chess books. And I just feel like, especially in the last 10 years, but since I've been here, the value of text has gone down dramatically. You know, people, the kids, you know, the, for example, the kids who got admitted into that writing course grew up uh, online. So they didn't read the classics. They were, you know, they don't have any 
relationship to the classic texts as you know people who grew up in my generation did and i think just like it's you need a lot of practice to you need to read a lot to write well you also need to um read a lot just to read well <laughs> you know it's a skill definitely to read well. definitely so um and these kids don't have it and so now i'm just more interested with uh, creating content that people will be into, such as maybe video or this, I'm, you know, um, more than the print media. The, would I like to do it? Let me get back to the question. It would be great, especially if I felt there was an audience out there for it. I would love to do maybe something more. That's true. Excellent. This leads us into a question from this month's Cover Stories Contest winner, sponsored by U.S. Chess Sales. So visit USCF Sales for all of your chess book and equipment needs and receive a discount as a U.S. Chess member. This month's Best Question winner is Mario Garcia-Gonzalez. And Mario writes, As you are a chess player and expert in philosophy as well, in what ways do you think that chess can help people know themselves out of the uh, outside of the chessboard uh, or away from the chessboard, their strengths, their weaknesses, their limitations, and so forth. Yeah, I think that's one of the great things about chess is that, especially if you uh, really work on your game and if you do it the way I kind of think it's best done, which is the let's call it the Soviet method, which is to get a notebook and get a copy of your game and to start writing out the analysis of that game you will discover terrible truths about yourself. <laughs> you will discover a lot of pain. It will help you. You will grow from the experience, but it will um, not be an easy one. I'm, I'm curious because you made a video about this exact topic that we, uh, we retweeted at USS because it was so brilliantly done. And it was about the uh, the secret to improvement. Is that the, the title, roughly, or something along those lines? I think I call it, yeah, the true path. Yes, um, and and basically, what you said is that you know you need to go deep into your games without an engine, uh, preferably with a pen and paper, and tear them apart, uh, and 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 spend hours doing it. And I'm I'm curious about the degree to which you think other top players still do this. Do do you think that you know, um, uh, other grandmasters or, or IMs who are who are working on their game. Do you think they still do this, or do they simply, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, Anno Fritz things and get on with their day? <laughs> That's a good question. You know, and then you, I, you, you guys correctly ask Greg for a response. I, I did, you know, in this article, I'm a little bit uh, just having fun with him in our argument. But, you know, he referenced that these kids are coming up. I think he mentioned Farouz uh, from Iran. And uh, is it quite possible that the kid is never even, he might not even know how to properly write. It's totally possible, you know. So these kids, I think what one of the cool things that they have is, they have uh, they they are playing long games so just the act of playing and they get a lot more than in generations past and um, they are able to have discussions with people and those can serve a little bit as a proxy for going over your own games with a pen and paper 
Um, but I know that a lot of the other players are in fact, like looking pretty deeply at their games and, um, with teams. And you can see that even in the opening work where they're doing, they'll do the opening work with computers, but they'll also try to sit down and understand it themselves. And, um, that work of sitting down without the computer, just say with the opening is very similar to going over your own games without the computer as well. Interesting. Yeah. It's funny. I I started looking one day in Megabase at, at the difference in game numbers between, let's say, Fisher or Botvinnik, and then someone like Carlson. Right. And there's already five. There's five thousand of Carlson's games in Megabase. Right. And you know, eight hundred, eight hundred of Fisher's. Now, yeah, I mean, Fisher played you know lots and lots of Blitz, but I, I really like your idea that you know the, the people are playing so much more chess today and have so much more access, partially because of online. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that it it can sort of stand in in some ways, um, not perfectly, but perhaps at least functionally. Uh, let, let's switch gears a little bit because we could talk about this all day. Um, I want to talk about Chess Dojo, um, mm-hmm. and I'm curious uh, because this seems to be a very big emphasis for you right now. So, how did you get involved in it? What is it, and and what is it doing? What's the big idea? Yes, you know, I had been doing some streaming and stuff, and I wasn't that into it. You know, I was just like, I had, my, I had the family life going on, and I was just interested in improving myself. And it was really um, David Pruce. I am David Pruce, and I am uh, Kosta Kabutsky, who kind of approached me and were like, hey, do you want to do this project? And at first, I was honestly kind of skeptical. I was like, I don't know, you know, <laughs> yada, yada, yada. Um, and I'm really happy I did it. Um, for me, it's given the opportunity to just, let's say, publish things that are, uh, you know, give me a lot of freedom. So, for example, you know, if I was going to be an academic, I would be doing articles or whatever, and I would be reaching a very limited audience. And now with YouTube and stuff, you can put together a thought you have and put it out there and um, minimal work entailed, and you can publish something, and then people, boom, can watch it. A lot of people can watch it. And then you can get a feedback and at least feel kind of good about yourself. And in a way, it's like, I've achieved or am achieving the dream that I had when I was an academic, which was I don't really want to be like bound to some institution and have to do paperwork and be forced to teach kids that might not be into it anyway. I just want to be this independent scholar type dude who can publish things and teach whenever I want, or maybe I don't want to do it, you know? So it gives me a lot of freedom to be essentially like uh, a prof, but not bound to a institution. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, that was my personal re- <laughs> that was my personal relationship to it. Maybe that's not quite what you're going for. No, no, that's that's actually quite a bit of what I was curious about. So, so tell us about what it's doing right now. The sorts of projects you have going on uh, about the Discord, because uh, a lot of people here may may not know what Discord is. Right. So let's say there's three main things we're doing. There's uh, YouTube videos, which everyone will be familiar with, Twitch, which maybe only some people will be familiar with, and Discord. And Twitch and Discord really evolved out of the gaming world. And uh, Twitch is just a way for people to stream live their, their thoughts and have interactions with people online. 
And um, it's really remarkable, I think, especially for the younger generation of chess players, because they can get online with whether it's their their favorite instructor or their favorite player and watch them play. And um, a lot of top players are doing it now. And Hikaru is having fantastic success, even reaching beyond the uh, standard chess uh, audience doing his t- Twitch stream. Yeah, let, let me stop you right there. I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts about that, because I know, uh, especially right now, there are some who find uh, this the, this move by Hikaru to be slightly controversial. And I, I'm, I'm curious about uh, your thoughts on, on, on what's going on right now in this, this sudden explosion of chess on Twitch and among gamers. Um, I think it's great, you know, I, and honestly, I think the controversy, you know, is like Ben Feigold and, and Naka were kind of going at it. And honestly, I don't think that it was a fun controversy, honestly, that just drove more interest to the game. Um, hmm. I feel like Naka can do whatever he wants. If you if someone wants to do a fun video stream and they want to just talk about chess in a lighthearted way, have had it. I think that's great. And then there's going to be other people who are more interested in something that feels more substantial and then they can come to a site like ours. I don't have any problem though with Nock if he just wants to have fun. <laughs> you know, yeah. The kid just wants to have fun and like do his thing. That's fine. Makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm sorry, I interrupted you, but you were talking about, um, the three different things. So YouTube, Twitch, and Discord. Right. And so Discord was a thing that I really didn't understand before. And it's basically a platform for people who are interested in, say, a stream, like our uh, Twitch stream, to get uh, together and be a community. And so already it's grown massively. And we have a thousand plus, I think, or somewhere around there, people who are active in our Discord server. And then there's various channels. You can go in, for example, we're doing various tournaments. And so each tournament has its own channel. And you can go in there and you'll find the people that you're going to play. And you can set up whenever you want to play, whatever time control. You know, usually there's you know some constraints on the time control given the tournament. But, you know, you can go in there, set it up whenever you want to play, maybe talk about the game afterward maybe post it for us to see and we cover a lot of the games like doing live commentary regardless of whatever level it is usually on sunday nights at like six eastern me and Kosti will come on there and make snide comments about the games <laughs> in progress and it's just a fun thing to do you know anyways so there's a variety of ways that people can interact on the discord server in it and at first right like i'm just so old i didn't get it but now I'm like, oh, this is really cool and interesting. And one of the things I really didn't get when I wrote it, I think I said, is I didn't understand that the tournaments was going to be such an amazing feature of the Discord and of our site because now we're organizing these tournaments. And, yeah, a lot of people are really into it, especially because they're longer games. Yeah, I, I will say just as a um, you know, uh, full disclosure, I am in that Discord. Um, uh-huh. I'm not an active participant that much because um, I – Got a five-year-old at home and and trying to learn this editor gig and, uh, right. but uh, I, I try to keep tabs on it and there's a lot of really good content there and people are very active, and I think anyone who uh, has watched any of the uh, Chess Dojo streams or any of the videos on YouTube might want to go check it out. If you are looking for information on this, we do have a sidebar in the article that Jesse wrote where you get a sort of thumbnail sketch of the discord of, of what it is. And you also get the address so that you can go sign up for it. 
Right, and also if you go on any of our YouTube videos, there'll be a, a Discord link that you can click. Perfect. Uh, I, I really liked how you sort of talked about what you're doing with this as, as a different form of publishing. Um, but as you mentioned earlier, you and I are both bibliophiles. Uh, we, we are the sorts of dinosaurs who like, uh, who like the printed page and, uh, and, and aspire to, uh, to certainly, I certainly aspire to, to have my own book someday. Um, you just made a video review of two books about Kasparov from Elk and Ruby. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and you like both those books very much, I think. But I gotta say, I think I just reviewed the first one. I'm going to do the second one, but oh, I just reviewed the first one. Yeah. Ah, okay. You just reviewed the yeah. first one. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, well, that, so that actually leads into the question I had for you. Uh, which other books have you read recently that you've liked or which do you, uh, do you really want to take a look at right now? Well, I did order the second book. Uh, so this was, uh, a book that, uh, Kasparov's trainer, Nikitin, wrote back in the day. And I think it originally came out in the 90s in Russian, and they just translated it. And as I said in the review, one of the cool things is that his analysis is not computer-based. And for my own you know, interest in reading things, that really makes things more interesting because then I'm seeing somebody's like thoughts as, they, as if they were a player instead of some kind of machine. As a contrast, in a book I really liked, too, came out recently, were these Gelfand books that Agard helped edit. And um, the only drawback there was, like, right, the guy turned on the computer. And so a lot of it is like a computer gobbledygook of stuff. <laughs> but still, I did enjoy those books. If you ask me what other books came out recently, I did enjoy those. Okay. Uh, last question for you. Um, and it comes from Chris Wainscott. Okay. So Chris writes, uh, and he, he writes, uh, Jesse, it seems that right now we're both in a dream and a nightmare scenario. <laughs> so that's quite a lead in. Um, the dream. Many of us finally have a lot of free time to work on chess improvement. The nightmare. There are no over-the-board tournaments to test our hopefully honed skills. Right. So for players like myself, who tend to underperform when playing online, do you have any practical advice on how to stay focused and trusting in the process? Yeah, I think one uh, thing about this is that, well, let me back up. For anybody playing chess, especially anybody a little bit older that's been playing for a while, um, you will probably be at some kind of plateau, right? Like you've been stuck at some rating range for a while and your habits have kind of ossified. Your thinking has ossified. Um, and so what one of the great opportunities of this crisis, let's call it, is that you are forced to kind of change your habits up no matter what, not just your chess work, but your entire life is changed, right? And so there's new ways of interacting with the with chess. And um, I could, you know, I could talk at length about which ways are good and which ways are bad. But basically, I think everybody has an intuitive sense of what empty calories are, and substantive calories. And that definitely applies in the chess world, right? There's so many easy things you can do in chess right now. There's so much content that you can consume. And if you just try to pick the content that is challenging to you, you will make progress. And also we will get more tournaments and we also might learn to play online. I really think we are learning to play online. And it, so what's going to happen, I think, is we will get tournaments that will probably be smaller in nature, right? I don't think we're going to get 
the big open Goitschberg tournaments for a while. Those things were a virus festival. They always were. And even before we knew about viruses, everybody knew that they were coming home sick from those events. Um, but we're going to get round robins and we're going to get smaller events. And like I said, we're going to start learning to play online. And that's something I have to do as well. I've been watching a lot of online chess and commenting on it, but I haven't even done it myself. So there you see, I'm, I'm not, I can't even practice what I preach yet, but I know at some point it's going to happen. At some point. Yeah. Um, it really is a brave new world, and uh, I have to tell you, Jesse, I'm I'm very glad that that I asked you to write this uh, this article for us. I think it's a a perfect sort of snapshot of of where we are, um, and I, I think you did a fantastic job. And I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm I couldn't be happier that you were the first guest that I got to talk to because um, I, I felt like it would be a very interesting chat, and I think it definitely was. So, really, thank you so much for your time. Uh, before we go. Where can we find you online? Uh, Twitter and the Discord server are, are the best places. Perfect. All right. Well, Jesse, thank you so much. Um, and yeah, uh, I hope everyone uh, enjoyed this and come back next month when we have another episode of uh, Cover Stories with Chess Life. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Our podcast will return next month on the first Tuesday, when we will again be making a deep dive into the pages of Chess Life magazine. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose educational mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button, where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life or Chess Life Kids, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. If you're already a member, consider clicking on the donate button at uschess.org. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Thank you and good chess. <laughs>